Thank you, Pastor Joe, for filling in for Phil today. Um, I'm taking his role and just uh, instructing the kids. We're going to talk a little bit about that actually today in the message. I was just reflecting on kind of having our kids up here each week. There's a lot of things that we do on a weekly basis that uh, because we do them so often, sometimes they may become a little bit redundant, and sometimes it's good to stop and reflect on those things. And I think just uh, instructing the children up here is one of those things that we might take a moment today and just uh, maybe pause for a little bit more reflection on it than maybe we normally would. But uh, good morning to you, church. And uh, as usual, it's an honor to be able to share with you God's Word on this Lord's Day. I want to jump right into the New Testament and the Old Testament reading for today. And the New Testament reading will be coming from Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Matthew chapter 11, 25 through 30. And the Old Testament text for today, and also it is the scripture for which today's message will come from, is Psalm chapter 127. I'll read them out loud, but feel free if you'd like to turn along uh, to them in your Bibles, and you can follow along as I read from them. So let us now give attention to the reading of God's holy word, starting in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30, the Lord's word, and just a little bit of context uh, before I do, this is uh, referring to Jesus' teaching uh, to a crowd after revealing his Messiahship, specifically to John the Baptist, and he was beginning to reveal his, um, his identity as well to the surrounding audience. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." The Old Testament text today comes again from Psalm chapter 127. The Lord's word says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children's of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to come and share your word today, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Emmaus. Thank you for everybody who's here today, Lord. I thank you for the blessings that you pour out upon us, Lord. There's so much that we can be thankful for, Father, and I pray that as we go through your word, Lord, and we reflect on it, Lord, that we would eat of it, Lord, that we would feast upon it, 
that we would be able to have our souls nourished, Lord, by just the, uh, the deep and embedding truths that are in it, Lord. Help us now to calm our minds and our hearts, Lord, that we are able to just hear what it is that your word has to say to us, Lord, your people and your church, Father, on this Lord's day. And again, we thank you for this time together. It's your name that we pray. Amen. I do hope, church, that everybody had a good Easter Sunday last week uh, with your family. Actually, more uh, appropriately, it would have been Resurrection Sunday. Um, How it came about to be Easter Sunday is maybe for a sermon in itself. Uh, Maybe we'll put that in one of the Emmaus Essentials one day. It's actually an interesting history behind it. But last week, as you go through and went through Resurrection Sunday, and as we spent uh, that time remembering and reflecting on the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection... And if you follow the biblical narrative, we are now in the time where Jesus, according to the timeline of Scripture, uh, would have spent approximately the next 40 days on earth before his ascension and before the Holy Spirit uh, came at Pentecost as well. It was soon after the resurrection of Christ that Jesus appeared to his uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it was actually from that portion of Scripture uh, from which our church uh, was named. And it was during the time that Christ spent on earth post-resurrection that gave further evidence, better yet, final evidence, and confirmation of just who exactly Christ was and really what he had accomplished on the cross uh, during Calvary. And at this time, post-resurrection, after um, completing his work on the cross, and instead of immediately taking his rightful place in the heavenly throne, Christ still continued to humble himself on the earth in his post-resurrection body, and he continued to uh, teach his disciples about the Old Testament scriptures, about himself, and about the connection between the two. The Lord was continually long-suffering and gracious, clearly, in the sending of his son, and his son's atonement for his people's sins, but that long-suffering and graciousness continues even further with Christ's continued stay on the earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. After everything was accomplished and he had done it, um, uh, and he had accomplished what he had come here for, at that point in his resurrected body, he still continues to stay on the earth uh, for a period of time to continue to teach those around him and to teach his disciples further truths about exactly who he was. And much of what we're going to talk about today actually revolves around the immense goodness of God and the sacrifices that God himself makes and what God gives to his people. But then again on that topic, really all of scripture talks about that for that matter. But that is going to be really the area that we're going to focus on, the goodness of God and also the sovereignty of God. Now the goodness of God is something in itself that we could spend entire Lord's Day reflecting upon and talking about. It would be very easy to do that, just talking about the goodness of God. In fact, one of the things I often try and focus on on the Lord's Day, and uh, whenever it is a time of prayer, I find myself always coming to the Lord in prayer with uh, being thankful and with thanksgiving in my heart, for there is always so much to be thankful for when it comes to all that God has given to us and to his people. But today's message is not just about the goodness of God, it is equally about the sovereignty of God and the divine connection between these two uh, areas of who God is and how God functions. Actually, These two theological concepts are probably the two that I spend the most time reflecting upon more than any other. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about what it is that you reflect on more than anything else when it comes to the things of God, 
but how God is so good and how God can continue to be so good. And the goodness that God pours out upon us is one that I often reflect on, um, as is the sovereignty of God and how God is able to work all things for the good of his people and is constantly working all things. These are very profound concepts and ones that I most certainly myself have spent a lot of time um, reflecting on. And both of these concepts, the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God, uh, seem to be very unique and distinct in their own right. But the interesting thing about today's message is that Psalm 127 seems to blend both of these seemingly unrelated theological concepts into what appears to be a harmonious union between the realm of God's sovereignty and the application of God's goodness. So what I want to do is just take a a brief moment to set the stage for the proper interpretation and application of Psalm 127 uh, by looking specifically at the background of Psalm 127. Just a couple of quick points of, um, uh, to make note of in the context of Psalm 127. Uh, firstly, the Psalm uh, 127 is located in the fifth and final book of the broad categories of the Psalms. The Psalms are broken up into five books, um, five broad books, and Psalm 127 is in the fifth and final of those. It is titled A Song of Accents. When you look at it in its interpretation in, in, in your Bibles, you'll notice it is titled A Song of Accents of Solomon. And most scholars believe that these psalms are identified as song of accents because they were sung by pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, in which the pilgrims had to ascend in order to get through the mountainous areas located in and around Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem exists within a series of hills and valleys and is located 2,500 feet above sea level, being protected on three of the four sides by natural valleys. The Psalm of Accents also consists of 15 psalms, ranging from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and there is some debate on exactly who was the author of this psalm. Many scholars um, disagree on whether it was Solomon who actually wrote this this psalm, or if it was David. And the disagreement mainly revolves around the fact that the scholars disagree on the Hebrew construction and the translation of the word of. Some view the syntax to mean a psalm of Solomon, where others interpret the word for Solomon, and that would make a very big difference. Is it a psalm of Solomon, or was it a psalm for Solomon? One of them would show Solomon as being the author, the other one would show somebody being um, a different author, uh, which other scholars believe that it would have been David if it was interpreted in that way. However, as Calvin writes, and believes, along with many other scholars, uh, there is no reason not to see Solomon as the author of this psalm, especially uh, when you look at the fact that the writing and content of the psalm fits very well with the writings of Solomon. Thus, it does seem that it is most plausible and likely that the author of Psalm 127 is, in fact, Solomon. So, with just some of those brief uh, background uh, applications of information laid out, uh, which are there to better help us understand and properly apply the psalm, Uh, Let's take a closer look now at looking exactly um, and breaking down uh, each verse of Psalm 127. In verse 1, we see that the poet displays that everything is ultimately dependent upon the blessing of God. We see that everything is ultimately dependent upon the blessing of God. The author states that unless the Lord builds, then those who build, build in vain. Note that the verse does not say that unless the Lord builds, then nothing will happen. 
that there would be no building. Rather, the psalmist says that the builder, minus God, does so, does the building, in vain. Furthermore, in the second part of verse 1, the author says that unless the Lord watches over the city, then the watchman, minus God, watches in vain over the city. The building of a house and safety of a city are both followed with a common duplication of the word unless. This type of repetitive wording is a common theme in Hebrew poetry, uh, in Hebrew poetry and especially in the Psalms. The reasoning for this form of uh, duplicative writing uh, was to emphasize the extremely important point saying something in two different ways rather than just one to further emphasize the point. The overall point of them, both points being, that all work outside of the hand of God is in vain. Without the involvement of God in human affairs, it is not only unwise to not involve God, it is actually nonsensical. For what can man do outside of the sovereign hand of the Almighty God in heaven? This, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, was a point that Job learned the hard way, as God responds to Job's trials and suffering in the book of Job, chapters 38 through 42. If you haven't read the book of Job, or if you haven't read it in some time, I encourage you to do so. It's just a great reading, especially in God's response to Job in chapters 38 through 42. So if you have time, I again would recommend that you read these chapters to further see the application of this principle. But as we look at verse 1, we see that the Hebrew word that is being translated unless could also be translated as never or without, inferring the message that without God, the builder of a house and the safety of a town are simply and ultimately not possible. Outside of the sovereign hand and works of God, nothing ultimately is possible. For without the Lord and his blessing, what could even exist at all? As Job was so gently reminded again in chapters 38 through 42, of his book. And furthermore, the fact that the author of Psalm 127 specifically chose to reflect on the Lord's role in the building of a house and the safety of a city is a timeless principle that can directly be understood even in our culture today. For what two things could be more important in the sustaining of our direct safety concerns and needs than having and building a home and having and sustaining a safe city and or community? Thus, the psalmist takes two concepts, the building of a house and the sustaining of a city, to show the reader the simple and trifold point, simple and trifold point, that God gives, that God provides, and that God is the one who sustains. And it is God alone who is the one who sustains all of these things. This is the main principle being applied in uh, being revealed in verse 1. In verse 2, after setting the stage for the Lord's role in the creating and sustaining of reality, the psalmist then transitions into the opposite perspective on God's sovereignty in the building and sustaining, focusing instead on the vanity of man's hard work. The structure of the psalm again draws out a twofold contrast, this time contrasting God's sovereign goodness with man's vanity in his work. The psalmist stresses the meaninglessness of man's long hours of work when it is done outside of the guiding and sovereign hand of the Lord. The poet states that in one's rising early and resting late, that we engage in, quote, the bread 
of anxious toil. Now, the phrase, the phrase, eating the bread of anxious toil, or as some translations translate it, the bread of painful toil, both are uh, equally good translations in my opinion, is very analogous in nature, being clearly understood by even uh, the most simple of readings. But when you take a moment to reflect on this statement and when you trace it back to its root, that statement becomes even more clear, becomes even more meaningful, and actually becomes even more profound. Turn with me, if you will, to make this point, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. I will be reading it, so if you're unable to turn to it, that's okay. But Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17, and I'm going to read Genesis 3, 17 through 19. The words in Genesis chapter 3, 17 through 19 say this. And the context of it is this is God giving Adam his consequences of what now will uh, become of his state after falling into sin from eating from the tree in the garden. Seven, verse 17 says this. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, And have eaten of the tree which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, was most likely one of the main, if not the main, portion of Scripture in the mind of the psalmist when referring to the eating of the bread of anxious toil. In the garden, sin was brought into the world by the disobedience of man. And what did this sin do? What did this concept, this overarching theme of sin do? It separated man from his creator in every way. It separated man from his creator in every way, forcing him into a life of struggling to live and provide on his own ability instead of resting, resting in the providential goodness of his creator. And though Psalm 127 is classified as an ascent psalm, in many ways it almost meets the criteria as being a messianic psalm, um, as who other than Christ is able to really to and truly free mankind from the bondage of self-sustainability outside of the caring hand of the God of the universe. I want to emphasize just for a second that term self-sustainability. Self-sustainability is something that we often prize ourselves on so much that we think that we can do things on our own. But we must recognize that what Psalm 127 is discussing at this point is that that is being connected to the curse, that we see ourselves as being separate from God, able to do things on our own. And Psalm 127 is reminding the reader that that is only a facade, that in reality there is no connection between the things that happen in our efforts and our works outside of the sovereign hand of God. And again, many believe that all psalms can at least indirectly be tied to Christ, as do I. Um, And that is most certainly true here, as we see that uh, Christ is the one who gives rest, as we saw from the um, New Testament reading today, and we'll see in the concluding reading today as well. But Psalm 127 looks back to the effects of the fall in the beginning of Scripture, 
while simultaneously looking forward to the benefits and glory of the Messiah's atoning work on the cross. It is already looking forward to the rest that will come ultimately in the work of the Messiah, our Christ and Lord. Directly after explaining the curse of the eating of the bread of anxious toil, the psalm immediately contrasts the work of anxious toil with the rest that God gives to his beloved. Again, we see this contrasting um, uh, format at work in this psalm. For it is God who is able to give rest in the midst of toil, and that rest is reserved only for God's beloved. Now, some translations interpret the phrase phrase, God gives to his beloved or gives rest to his beloved um, in sleep. They say that God gives this rest in sleep, which would mean that God is not as much giving the sleep, but instead he is providing for his child while they sleep. So God gives the sleep or God gives while in sleep. Two different ways and uh, two different interpretations that are pretty common uh, with this psalm. But note that it is not the sleep that is contrasted with labor. Rather, it is contrasted with the trouble and care that come about from laboring outside the hand of God. Sleep is evidently contrasted uh, with the late working of those who do not give themselves up to God's protection, which clearly is alluded to in the first part of the verse, or in verse 1. Thus, both translations, whichever way you see it, actually, can be seen as accurate, as each fits the proper context of the psalm. God both provides for his beloved in their sleep, and he is the one who blesses them with the divine rest as well. Both can be seen as equally correct and true. And so it is at this point, at the end of verse 2, that the psalmist then transitions to this comparatively different topic, a, a, a topic that almost seems completely uh, unrelated, but we'll see they are actually very directly and, and intimately related, and that is the topic of children. So in verse 3, or primarily in verses 3 through 5, these ver- verses focus specifically on the fact that children are firstly, foremostly, and primarily a gift from God. And as I first began to read and study the psalm, I really struggled with seeing the direct connection between verses 1 and 2 and also with verses 3 through 5. I knew that something had to be there because I knew that that's exactly the way that this psalm was going to be structured. But at first glance and for the first several times going through it, I did not see the connection. Because what could possibly be the connection between rest and anxiety and having children, right? Surely there can be no logical connection between a good night's rest and children. Could there? I put in my notes, emphasize joke, just, just, to make sure that, <laughs> just to make sure that comes clear. But in all seriousness, it was not immediately clear what the psalmist was trying to connect between these two concepts. We do know, however, that the psalm uh, is written with these, again, two contrasting parallels, And there's a dichotomy of sorts to further bring about more profound points. Thus, the two concepts could not just be arbitrary. They must be connected and intimately connected. So upon further reflection and study, a picture of the combined concept of the psalmist's point began to appear. And it only became clearer and clearer as I looked deeper into the text. Verses 1 and 2, the poet reveals that God is both sovereign over the affairs of all things and that he blesses those who are his beloved with rest. And in verse 3, the author refers to children both as a heritage from the Lord and fruit of the woman's womb, a gift from God. 
Also, that these children will continue to bless and help care for the needs of the parents in the context of the broader community, verses 3 through 5. Hence, nearly the exact same point is being made in two overtly contrasting topics. The topics being of work and rest, and the other one, children and protection. The clear point the poet is making and is displaying is this, that children are a blessing from God, and that rest is a blessing from God. Both are given from God. And it is through God's design that one's children will continue to sustain and bless the parent into old age. And also, that it is from God that it is he who cares and watches over the city. All means and provisions ultimately come from God and from God alone. In addition, the author continues this point in verse 4 when he compares the children of one's youth to arrows being in the hand of a warrior. And of what use are arrows other than to protect the one uh, who carries them from his foes and uh, adversaries? Furthermore, in verse 5, the poet again extends the analogy of children and arrows as he says that the one who fills his quiver with them shall not be put to shame. If you do not know, a quiver is a backpack-like container where the archer would store uh, his or her arrows and uh, use them when needed to shoot from uh, their bow. Thus, the analogy shows that a quiver full of arrows is likened to that of a household of godly and believing children. For in the same way that a household of ungodly and unbelieving children can bring about much anxiety and grief from the father and mother of a household, a household of godly and believing children can, in contrast, bring about great joy and blessing. And he who has such children, as it says in the psalm, shall not be put to shame. For when enemies come to greet a father at the city gate, no shame shall come upon that father, for his children and his inheritances are protected. Thus, not only does God use his sovereign ways to watch over the home and city of a man directly, he also uses the practical means of child-rearing to bring about security and confidence in the wake of adversity. Therefore, what is the ultimate connection between verses 1 and 2 and 3 through 5? Only that God is the one who is behind both the blessings given to man and the workings coming from man. It is God who is the one who gives. It is God the one who sustains. God is the one who is behind all things. For again, who is behind the plans of man other than God alone? Who is the only one who truly sustains the city? other than God alone? Who is the one who blesses his beloved with children and fills their quivers? No one other than God alone. And who is the one who that allows the creation and the rearing of children to further reinforce the gates of city? This too is from God alone. It is God and only God who sustains all things under the sun. And as I begin to come to the conclusion of my sermon, or at least the exegetical part, there's four points of application I would like to give to you today before we um, close. And I'd like to draw this from Psalm 127. I want you to hear these points of application because that's really what's behind this psalm. It's It's the part that you can take, that you can draw from it, the part that really will allow you to see this psalm as something that changes life and behavior And so I have four points, and I do again ask that you listen to them carefully. The first point that I want you to see 
is that we need to be humble before the Lord. We must be humble before the Lord. Without God, we are nothing. All endeavors that have ever began by any man through all of history, all are through and underneath the sovereign hand of the Lord. When sin entered into the world through the disobedience of man, the relationship between the creation and the creator was severed. One of the primary downfalls that entered into humanity in that first sin was that man went from godly dependence upon the Lord to worldly independence. Again, emphasizing that curse of self-sustainability that came to man. Mankind today often likes to boast of all of its accomplishments, likes to gloat in all of its glory and all that we can do. Yet very rarely, very, very rarely, is any credit given to God. In fact, it was just yesterday that the world celebrated the anniversary of Earth Day, which I don't have anything uh, necessarily negative to say about, but, or however I should say, as I read articles and saw news clips on events that took place across the world, all of the attention on this day was given to the sustaining of the creation without a single reference to the Creator. And oh, how foolish it is if you refer to Romans chapter 1, verses 25, for people to worship the creation rather than to worship the Creator. As the psalmist says, to build or sustain without the direct knowledge of the sovereign hand of the Lord is to do so in vain and to worship His creation and to see all the value in that. Minusing the Creator is just as much, if not more, in vain than that. So, church, go to your Creator and worship Him alone. And be humbled before Him, as Job was, when the Lord so graciously, so gently responded to His pleas and cries. Worship Him and Him alone, for He is your sovereign Creator. Stand before Him humbled. Do not grow prideful. If you do, read your scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and there will be story after story of reminding you of why you must be humble before the Lord and not become prideful. Point number two. Point number two. God is sovereignly good over his creation. God is sovereignly good over his creation. God is actively at work with watching over his creation. He does not rest from it. He does not take breaks from it. And not only is God just sovereign over all things, more more importantly, God is sovereignly good over all things. Not just a God who is overseeing all things, but he is doing so being of the utmost good and being of the utmost holy. As Paul tells us in Romans 8.28, God is actively at work behind the plans and workings of man as he is working all things for good for those who love him. The Lord is the one who sustains the works of man and brings them to fruition. It is the Lord who blesses families with children to continue to grow both the family and the church. This is God's primary means of doing that. Now, on a quick side note, when it comes to God's sovereignty and his goodness, I've often heard many Christians ask the question, quote, if God is sovereign and he, is ultimate, and he ultimately is going to work out all things for his good, then where does the line between my work and plans and his work and plans intersect? Have you ever struggled with this question yourself before church? It is a common question. What do I do 
if God is in control of all things? Where's my free will and God's um, ordained will? How do all these work together? And to be honest, this question merits an entire sermon in itself. Maybe that can be my topic for next time. But I will briefly share with you uh, the very seasoned words of John Calvin on this point as he comments on this portion of Scripture. Calvin states the following, The Lord does not want us to be like logs of wood or to sit idle. He expects us to put to use whatever abilities we may have. It is, of course, true that the heaviest part of our labors comes from God's curse. But even if man's original state of integrity had remained, God would still have desired us to keep busy. Adam was put in the garden to cultivate it. Solomon does not condemn what God approves, and certainly not the labor men undertake gladly at God's command and offer to him as an acceptable sacrifice. But to keep men from being blinded by pride, kind of goes back to the first point, and from grasping at what belongs to God, he warns them that hard work wins success only so far as God blesses our labor. You see, church, the Lord works through the plans of man to ultimately accomplish his own sovereign plans. Nothing can thwart the plans of God, yet man goes about his busyness on earth. And this relationship is a bit of a mystery, but when we acknowledge the sovereign hand of God as being behind all of our plans, God works through our work to bring about his ways and his purposes, and those are always being good. In doing so, we are also actively working all things for good, again, as God is working those for good. So trust freely in the sovereign goodness of your creator, church, knowing that he will both direct your path and bring about his will. Thirdly, third point, children are a blessing and our future. We must not forget that. Children are a blessing and our future. If you are a parent, the reality is, is you've had a day or several of them where you have wrestled with the fact that your children do not seem to be anything remotely close to a blessing and or a gift from God. In fact, they could seem to be the exact opposite. But posterity is often represented as a blessing from God throughout all of the scriptures. Children are represented as being defenders or the arrows of their parents in war and in litigation. Thus, children are a form of divine providence for their parents. Remember this fact, church, and be emboldened and let us be emboldened together to raising our children in the light and knowledge that they are a gift from God. Regularly reflecting that our children are gifts on loan to us from the um, from our creator, and that the church of tomorrow is the children of today. We mustn't forget the responsibility that's entrusted to us with children. It's extremely difficult often at times to remember that, but the scriptures make it abundantly clear that they are the ones who will sustain and care for. And again, I'll say it one more time that the church of tomorrow is the children of today. The ones who will continue on what was started here at Emmaus are the ones who are the children in this room right now. They're the ones who we come up here and we sit and we start with catechizing. Um, The ones who will go and continue their studies 
and go and pursue uh, possibly careers in ministry and, and going to seminary. They're the, they're the children right now. We must continue to um, engage uh, with them in that way and teach them, not forgetting. We must not forget the job that is behind uh, the rearing of children. Fourthly, fourth point and final point is this, that true rest, church, is only found in Christ. <clears throat> true rest is only found in Christ. Now, I made the point before that this is almost a messianic psalm. It really is not categorized that way, but you can see Christ in it. And there's not a direct reference, but we do know that under the divine hand of God, most certainly Christ was within the words of Psalm 127. And as we look at this psalm, we see that a good night's rest really is a a gift from God. Wouldn't you agree, church? Just a good night's rest. It is a gift of God. According to the CDC, actually, nearly half of Americans do not get enough sleep each night, and they have actually just recently declared sleep depravity as a public health crisis. Would you believe it? This is bad news for many Americans today, right? The sleep deprivation is, is a massive issue. But that is not directly the sleep that is being talked about here, though it is a part of it. Because even though resting well at night is most certainly a gift from God, we all would agree on that. And a good night's sleep was most certainly a part of what the psalmist had in mind in verse 2. The true meaning of the word sleep is so much more than just a good night's rest. The sleep that the psalmist refers to here is of a divine form, a form that only the beloved are able to partake in. Whether it is the sleep itself uh, that the ESV translates and focuses on, or it is the view that in our sleep, while we are idle, the Lord is continuing to provide for us, both are a divine form of rest. Both make you sleep well. If God gives you rest, you sleep well. If God gives you peace of mind because you know that he is providing for all of your needs and you do not need to rack your brain over it, you also sleep well. Both actually end with a similar conclusion. For returning to verse 1, the mindset of workaholics is addressed. It says that they begin their labors early and continue them late, and through constant anxiety they may lose all of the enjoyment from that of which they earn. Eating that unpalatable bread of anxious and painful toil as they attempt to retire for the night on their own self-sustaining abilities. But for those who are in fellowship with the Lord, they enjoy their divine rest. They're able to work hard, yet rest easy. They're able to toil, all while toiling for the Lord. They're able to rise early in the knowledge that the day ahead ultimately rests in the hands of the Lord. And they are fully confident in their Creator's provision. They are fully confident in their Creator's provision. That is the difference. And church, to be honest, if you get nothing else from this message today, if there is really only one thing that you can take, I hope that you take all four points away. But if you can only take one, at the very least, get this point. Do not eat the bread of anxious toil. For it is a bread of which we were not made to digest. Instead, partake in the bread of life, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the one who atoned for our sins and can offer such rest. If you're looking where to go next in your devotions or readings, return to the book of John. 
This entire book is dedicated to Christ revealing himself in this way, showing who he truly is, often being referred to as the bread of life. And church of Christ is your king, and I know for many of you he is. May you rest easy in all aspects of your life, partaking of the divine slumber only given to Christ's own. But if you do not know Christ, by chance you are here and you do not know Christ, then it is my prayer that you are only further broken by my beginning and closing statements from Christ in hopes that your creator is reaching out to you to offer the divine rest that only he can offer. For again in closing, Christ tells us, tells those who hear his words, this from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father God, may we all find that rest that you give both forms of rest, Father. The rest that comes from acknowledging that you truly are in control, Lord, of all things. May we learn, Lord, how to entrust all things to you, Lord. May we learn what it means by obedience and wisdom, what it means to work, Lord, and to work hard, yet fully trusting in your provisions, truly, truly and fully trusting in you, Lord. And I also know, Lord, that you do give that rest, as you said in your word in Matthew 11, as Christ beckons us, Lord, that he is the one who gives that rest. There is a divine rest that comes from that, Father. Thank you for your word. I thank you for what you have for us, Father. And I thank you for the rest that comes in just reading on it and reflecting on it. I pray that we would all continue our studies, Lord, that we would eat of your word, Lord, that we would feast on your word, Father, that we would not be satisfied with anything else other than your word and who you are. May we all continue to grow in our relationship and our knowledge and our understanding of you. Again, I thank you for this day, this Lord's day, as you have blessed us yet again, Lord, with another day of life, another day of opportunity, another day of salvation, Lord. It's your name we pray. Amen.